And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! Hooray! Here we are in late... Was it late October? Is it early October? Here we are in fall, October, Ray Bradbury's month. <laughs> We're in is. the October country. We are indeed, oh. or at least the October podcast. Do you realize um, that no other science fiction author owns a month as much as Bradbury owns October. I think Neil Gaiman even said this at one point. That's true. Even though Neil's tried to have, have a bit of a sort of a lean on October in his spare time. Mm. Because, you know, if anybody was, was looking to get a share of October, it would, it would be him. But I agree. You don't sort of sit there and go, hmm, January, that's a bit of a Greg Bear month or something, do you? Nah. Sorry. June doesn't, doesn't do anything. April, T.S. Eliot owns April. <laughs> I don't think we're get, get, going to get into a literary calendar here, Gary, are we? <laughs> no, well, we could, but it probably would not, not lead anywhere useful. No, we were thinking about uh, a topic that we talked about a few weeks ago, which was, and we'd gone over the best of the year so far, or the outstanding books of the year so far, and it occurred to me that I don't remember what was on our list, but that some of the books, when you get close to the end of the year, you begin to realize that some of the books who are that are really good are books that haven't developed a lot of buzz that have not been showing up on uh, lots of you know best of the year so far lists that didn't get a lot of attention. So I thought what we, what we might ask our listeners to think about mm. or what are the most overlooked books of the year? What are the books that should have gotten more attention than they did? It's an interesting um, question because it's, you've got to preface it with a short discussion at least of what it means to be looked before you can talk about what it means to be overlooked. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the well, metric the to determine success? Is it that um, your book came out and sold 100,000 copies? Is it that it was reviewed in the New York Times? Is it that, was it that it was reviewed in Locus? Is it when you and I sit down to talk that our small circle of friends happen to be talking about it a lot? Um, that's a, th th Those are good questions, and they're questions that relate to another topic, which I want to pick up one of these weeks, which is um, the most overlooked authors generally. Uh, the most you know, forgotten authors, uh, and and you have to make a distinction in that case between uh, what's an overlooked book or author, and what's a, a never was book or author. In other words, authors that never had reputations, books that never rose to consciousness. Because every few years, somebody um, reprints a book, and and, and some 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 reputation is resurrected out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, I know, for example, that Open Road now has reprinted the Edward Whittemore novels which completely sank without a trace uh, back in the 70s when they were being published. I think there were a couple of mass-market paperbacks. Um, well, well, I'm old, yep. old Earth resurrected them and got a lot of attention for that. And because of the Old Earth reprints, I think, uh, Whittemore sort of has reappeared, and now he's re-reappeared. Re but my point is that for a good 20 years or so, no one had ever heard of Edward Whittemore. That's true. And then he became semi-cult kind of underground and it, you know mm -hmm. it's hard to know what seems to be an appropriate kind of reputation as well for a writer because first of all i don't think there is an appropriate reputation or, or level of exposure but sometimes somebody writes work that is sufficiently esoteric that you feel it's going to have a narrow appeal and so when someone gets a commensurate audience it seems at least in scale you know uh, there was a time, for example, where, I mean, to pick a name out of the hat, Jeff Vandermeer 
when it, when mm-hmm. his first uh, book came uh, first book came out, he thought this is a guy who's got a very specific audience, and he'll do it brilliantly. But he's going to talk to that particular audience, and yet you know right. you've got to say that that's proven to be untrue. Uh, he's got this new uh, series trilogy of books starting up early next year, and they've sold the world over to a, to a you know, huge number of publishers, and they obviously mm-hmm. believe they're going to have an enormous audience, and I certainly hope they do. Uh, so the series so, begins with annihilation. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, okay. And so there's no real way of knowing what an appropriate audience is. Is there? It's more, I guess, the feeling that you or I have individually when we come across a book and we go. I, that seems to have been missed. I mean, Starship Century is an example we were talking about earlier, which is an anthology of stories edited mm. by Greg and Jim Benford that came out in August following on a symposium and features a very good novelette by Neil Stevenson and a couple of other good stories by Benford himself and Baxter and others. Mm. Uh, didn't seem to get a lot of buzz, as an example. And True. We live in a world where, I mean, I, I guess the, the, we are wondering and not really commencing our conversation let's start from here before we get to individual titles okay do do we live in a time when it is far easier for books to be overlooked because a there are so many of them and b they often come out in small quantity well the small quantity is an important issue i I thought you were going to go in another direction with that i thought you were going to be asking if um if buzz means something different from what it did 20 or 30 years ago and i think I think it does, obviously. I think 20 or 30 years ago, buzz meant getting reviews in various venues. Is it going to be reviewed in Locus? Is it going to be reviewed in the New York Times? Is it going to be... Now, the chances are that with all the review venues online, some book is going to get noticed somewhere. Um, but in order for it to get noticed, even by uh, online bloggers, it has to become available to them. Mm. And that's where you get tiny print runs and small presses that... I guess the question I'm asking is, are they doing their authors a favor? Because on the one hand, they're certainly getting, a, let's say, a book of short stories published, or, 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 or a rather odd novel published. But how many people are going to be able to read it? And by the time people start, let's say, voting on the Hugo Awards, how many people can even get a copy of that book anymore? It's true. Sometimes, the, yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. The, the, coming, coming just a few weeks before the World Fantasy Awards, uh, this has always struck me as, frankly, an advantage that World Fantasy has over the um, over the Hugo Awards in that there is a jury, and the jury gets a lot of stuff. They get a lot yeah. more stuff, as you and I well know, than they can possibly read. But they also get a lot of stuff from small presses. They, they get stuff from PS. They get stuff from uh, Underhill uh, and, and so forth. Um, which means that in... The World Fantasy Awards, you can have a novel that did not get a lot of visibility, such as uh, Lafayette Tidar's Osama, actually winning the award. Yes, you can. Is there any chance that that novel could have even come close to winning a Hugo Award? No, I don't think there's any chance. I, I don't think Lavie would find that an offensive thing to say. I think it's a very specific appeal. I think it's a, an encouraging thing that it got a trade edition afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't have anticipated that. Uh, given the subject matter of of the book, so I'm very pleased that's what happened. But you know, well, that's what I mean. Bringing attention to a book can, in a way, save the book or at least bring the book to a wider audience. Yeah, um, and that's that's probably most noticeable in the case of novels. I think the problematical issue now, um, 
is that there are collections of short stories. Mm -hmm. um, our recent guest, Rachel Swirsky, for example, has a wonderful collection of short stories out, which I believe is out of print as we speak. Well, it's out of print at the publisher, certainly. Uh, mm -hmm. They say on their website they no longer have it. And I think they did about 750 copies or something was the print run, I believe. I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. You can still get it at online retailers, and I'm sure in-store, as often happens. But certainly, yeah, it's out of print at the publisher. Well, I mean, this is and, – and, and this is what I mean about publishers like, uh, like PS in the UK or Subterranean in the States is that given the current market for short story collections, they're doing the field an enormous service. They're putting major mm -hmm. collections together of major writers – uh, giving people a chance to to look at somebody's career. A lot of these collections, like Nadia Korofor's new collection, includes original stories that appear have appeared nowhere before in the collection. This is Kabu oh. Kabu that just came out from Prime yes. this, this last oh. few weeks. That's correct. And it's great that these things are happening The uh, because the argument to be made on on behalf of these small presses is that if, if they weren't doing it, nobody would be doing it at all. That, that's probably true. For, for the vast majority of the books that come out from small presses, most of them are books that would not be published from, you know, via a major publisher. I mean, if you look down the current World Fantasy Award ballot, just as an example, you know, mm -hmm. I, I look at it, you know, so sort of uh, in the novella category, Laird Barron is a story published in the Book of Cthulhu 2. That would have been a mm -hmm. borderline trade publication, I guess. Um, the Skull by Lucia Shepard from The Dragon Growl uh, was a, I mean, an excellent subterranean press book. Uh, which I think is still in print, but, mm -hmm. you know, um, I don't know. That would have been a viable trade book in and of itself. Sky by Karen Warren from Three Splintered Walls that came from Twelfth Planet. Definitely not a, tr a trade book, really. Though, I guess one of the questions as the market splinters and fragments and changes is, does a trade book still mean the same thing? I mean, yes, Stephen King can still sell a lot of copies of books, but, you know, does an average mid-list book sell less if there is still an average mid-list uh, book anymore? You know, do you oh, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure that the ratios. I mean, you're absolutely right. A Stephen King or, or probably now a Karen Russell can sell a book of short stories, uh, and it, it, it will be selling in numbers that would make 99% of the writers alive envious. I still suspect that a book of Stephen King short stories, or well, let's take let's take Karen Russell because she just has a MacArthur grant now, and she's sort of off and on one of us. But her Vampires in the Lemon Grove collection. Uh, which is very good. I've read most of the stories in it. Certainly isn't going to sell as many copies as her Swamplandia is. Yeah. In other words, in any given writer, uh, no matter how successful they are, the short story collections are going to sell a fraction of what their novels are likely to sell. I believe. I can't prove that. I think there are some in, some individual variations on that, but by and large, I think that's true. I think probably your you know, Kelly Link, who doesn't do novels really. Uh, mm -hmm. I think has done well with short story collections, but by and large, I think you're probably correct. So, but as we wander hither and yon in this conversation to try and like wrench it back, I'll confess I don't have immediate con uh, sort of candidates for most overlooked book of 2013 to date. What do you got, Gary? Let's talk about it. Well, okay. Since we were talking about short stories, there are a couple of books that I saw again from small presses and another small press which we should commend even though they publish small editions as aqueduct yes and one of the most enjoyable books of the year was eleanor arneson a vastly underrated writer vastly. in terms of her whole career uh with big mama stories and big yep. mama stories are the kind of um they're she's having a lot of fun 
but she's done a lot of thinking of how you would write science fiction tall tales. Uh, so that there's a there's a part of this that looks like the sort of thing that Lafferty did every once in a while. Yep. Part of it that looks like some earlier earlier Eleanor Arneson. Some of it looks like some of Le Guin's more playful stories. But but they're wildly over the top, but very wise stories uh, that are that are linked that have a kind of common mythology to them about these figures that are called big mamas that come in various colors and they're also big papas yep. uh, that just kind of stomp through the universe like uh, oh like like mythical characters out of Victorian paintings I'm trying to think of that one painting called the sower of the systems but they're they're, they're funny and wise at the same time um, I'm glad aqueduct published them uh, I'm glad to see Eleanor Arneson getting some attention but again at the end of the year, how many people will remember that that book was even published? I actually think within the core of the field, it, as we understand it at least, it'll be discussed because I think she's got a real name uh, within a certain group of people and Ooh. she makes best of the years and that kind of thing. But I agree. I mean, first of all, my serious kudos to Aqueduct for publishing it and a fine book. And one of actually a couple they published, uh, frankly, uh, the book you're overlooking that they published this year was the Tanith Lee Collection. Space is yes, Just a Starry Night, her collection of science fiction stories, which features a couple of originals, uh, I think, if, if I recall correctly, and is another fi I mean, fine group of stories from a, a terrific major writer who's actually just won the Lifetime Achievement Award for World Fantasy, but not a book that's got a lot of yeah. discussion and, in and, our circles. And the book has, well, this raises an interesting question also, because um, I wonder if that book suffered from the fact that people were surprised that Tanith Lee had written science fiction at all. I don't know. I mean, Tanith was very prolific, and then I think she went through. There's been a period in the second half of the tw of the two thousands, where so you know, so far, where I don't know that her stuff is sold as well. I really don't know. But certainly, you don't see as many books from her. It would be true. Mm. And so this this almost seemed like a left field publication, a welcome one, and another mm -hmm. acknowledgement. Because I mean, you can't say that people would be surprised she's a science fiction writer because she's always from the days of the silver medal lover onwards written science fiction. At the beginning, the do the old Daw books. That's true. She certainly began in that area. Yeah. I'm not sure that's where her readership has evolved uh, yeah. in the last. What are we talking about? Thirty years now, I guess. Oh, more. Yeah. More than that, forty. And and, and in fact, uh, yeah, she has published two or three of the great short story collections. I mean, Red as Blood is a, a spectacular collection. Mm -hmm. And there's a collection, the name of which shouldn't escape me, but does, that was published by Arkham House, which was a best of her earlier work, oh, which is fabulous. Yes. You know. So that's, okay, you, you caught me on that because that, by very, your very mention of that illustrates my point. That is a book which I myself have overlooked. There you go. Um, what, what else have you got, Gary? Because I agree. Well, okay, we'd mentioned the Lavi Titter novel. He has another novel out this year, Martian Sands. Now, see, yes, he he does, and you you reviewed that. You liked that a lot, didn't you? I liked that a lot. Tell us about I Martian think, Sands, Gary, for a minute. Well, I think Martians are now, now without looking at my review again. One of the things, apart from the plot and apart from the uh, kind of, um, is, you know, Israeli. Um, um, espionage on Mars is part of it, but he plays with history in a very courageous way. He plays with history in a way that is not steampunk, that is not uh, uh, alternate history. Although he certainly has an alternate history plot involved with this one, but he he raises these issues in 
a very politically astute sense. I mean, he makes you wonder, for example, about uh, the be very beginning of that novel, um, makes you wonder about uh, Franklin Roosevelt's response to the Holocaust. Uh, that's an issue which is a serious issue among historians and has been for uh, over a decade now. And it informs his fiction in a way that is not thuddingly uh, allegorical, mm -hmm. but that is provocative nevertheless. And it, does, and, and it doesn't take over the fiction as well. Yeah. So, uh, so what he's able to do, and he did the same thing with Osama, is, is disguise some very, uh, very insightful and sharp and um, in some cases sharply critical views of world politics and, uh, and, and political, political and social values yeah. in the context of what he never forgets as an adventure story. Yeah. Uh, he's also a fascinating writer to me because uh, he's one of these younger writers uh, Hanu Rayanemi is another one yeah. who have influences that I would never have thought of. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, one of one of Tidor's novels features Karl May, the German Western writer from the early part of the century, who was a huge bestseller in Germany. Um, he must have been the you know, the um, Zane Grey and the Edgar Rice Burroughs combined of popular German literature. Nobody reads him anymore. I don't know where Lavi Tidar gets about him, uh, finds out about him. Um, I mentioned Ryan Amy. He does the same thing with um, uh, Maurice LeBlanc, the French mystery writer. So, so what goes into books like this that fascinate me are is a huge and eccentric awareness of literary history, uh, a very critical and astute awareness of political and social history, and a love of writing old-fashioned adventure stories. Because if yeah. you don't pick up all the literary illusions in Martian Sands, it's still a lot of fun to read. One of the stories of the year? Um, I'm possibly. I'm, I'm not going to say no yet because I haven't started thinking about that list yet. Okay. I mean, allowing, of course, that he has another book out, in fact, uh, later this month, The Violent mm -hmm. Century from, uh, I think, Hodder and Stoughton, which is supposed to, which hopefully will be a, a major breakout book for him. So, yes. So what okay. else you got, Gary? You got Marshall I want to ask you about a book because this is a book that you anthologized a part of before it became a, a novel. Yeah. And it strikes me as an oddity, and I'm not going to say it's one of the best books of the year, but it, it's a, one of the most curious books of the year was Bruce Sterling's Love is Strange. Was that this year or was that last year, Gary? Was that last year? Uh, well, I'm going to look it up. Dear listeners, you will now hear typing as I type into Amazon.co.uk. Okay, you check it out. I reviewed I, it in I, this year. So. I wasn't sure if it was December or January, because if so, it's actually been completely overlooked. Uh, yeah, it was December of 2012. Okay. So. so we overlooked it last year, but we're on the, on the cusp. I mean, it's probably, in my time in the field, the most overlooked or undiscussed, the most undiscussed Bruce Sterling novel I can think of. It may be the most, okay, and I think we can count December 12, 2012, because again, when you, when you talk about the best of the year, and people like you and I who read months in advance have an advantage. I mean, a book that comes out in December 2012 is going to be read in 2013 by most of the readers. Yes. But you're certainly right. This is a, this is a Bruce Sterling novel that the fewest people have paid attention to. There's been very little buzz about it at all. And it's Bruce Sterling, for heaven's sake. It yes. used to be every Bruce Sterling novel was major industry news. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think back to the days of Holy Fire and before, and you're absolutely mm. right. Uh, Bruce was the, the core of the mainstream of the day in the post-cyberpunk period. There's no doubt mm -hmm. of, 
and any book of his, certainly at least in within, okay, I don't know the extent to which he was a huge commercial buzz in the world at large, but within the field, absolutely. Uh, within even the territory that was discussing who might be up for Hugos and all that kind of thing, absolutely. A book like Love of Strange would have been totally all over it. And when, at once upon a time, a hard science, well, a science fiction writer like Bruce writing a paranormal romance, for want of a better way of looking at it, as, it, as it's subtitled, uh, mm. like Love is Strange, would absolutely have been talked about everywhere. This one, not so much, despite being clever and interesting and worthwhile. It's clever and interesting, and it's, it's not a paranormal romance. I mean, that's uh, there, there's an aspect of that to it, I suppose, but it's, it's, it's probably in some ways the most Gibsonian novel he's written in quite some time. Um, but it's not very science fictional. It has a conflict of viewpoints. It is a romance. There's yep. no doubt about that. Yep. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I go back to the, a previous novel, The Caryatids, which did not get a lot of discussion either, no, it seems no, to me. No, it didn't. Undeserved. I mean, he's a terrific writer and has actually been con con continuing to compile a really interesting body of short fiction, particularly over the past 10 years. I think one of the things he's doing, especially with this novel, is moving out of a comfort zone. I think yep. that, uh, the sense I got from um, from Love is Strange is that he didn't want to write another Bruce Sterling novel. Yeah. Um, and I think he wanted to not write a novel that focused very specifically on a couple of characters, and that was, mm -hmm. um, at its heart, a romance. Uh, yep. A very ironic one, but still a romance. So I think he's to, he's to be given credit for taking that kind of chance. I don't think the novel was 100% successful, uh, but it was different. It was a surprise, and I wonder if people were thinking, well, this is not really a Bruce Sterling novel. This is Bruce Sterling doing a non-Bruce Sterling novel, which is always unfair to a writer. Yeah. Okay. What else? Here's one I like that I've never heard about from anybody else, because a writer who's been around for a long time is Bruce McAllister. Yes. Um and he written some brilliant short stories. He sort of seems to me disappeared for a long time and came back with a collection of linked stories called The Village Sang to the Sea, yep. which I thought was just lovely. It, was, it seemed to be partly autobiographical. It was partly magic realism. One of the episodes is flat out a horror story. Um, and it's enormously evocative of what it's like for a young boy whose father is involved with uh, naval intelligence, I guess, or naval research, yeah. to be stationed um, in this small Italian village yeah. um, in the 1960s. Yeah. And it's 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 somebody who has always been an elegant writer who just, I think, has learned to hone his prose down to a very fine point. Um, and it's also the kind of collection which I'm finding more and more of these years. As a matter of fact, another one I was going to mention, which is another collection of linked stories where you sort of piece together a narrative, was... Nina Allen Stardust, which I think is only out very recently. Oh, only just out. Before we move on from uh, Bruce McAllister's *The Village Sang to the Sea*, mm -hmm. a memoir of magic. I mean, there's a book. I mean, this book has come out from Eon Press. It's a real departure from his previous best-known book, I guess, which is uh, *War*. Was it *War Baby*? I think it was. Yeah. That came out back That's in the quite... mid '80s, I think. A if, long if... time ago, yeah. Yeah. And this is what an Irish small press. I mean, I've never seen a physical copy of um, the village that sang to the sea, which is which may be one of these factors. It's like McAllister is someone who deserves our attention and who has should have 
a lot of credibility because of what he did back, you know, back in the day, at least. And has continued well, to publish occasionally, in, occasion, sorry, publish occasionally publish interesting hmm. short stories. Um, and well, he's here's an interesting uh, thing. It seems to me he's published. Um, you're right, only occasional short stories recently. He has a long career of highly respected stories. In a way, in in, in some way, he's the male equivalent of Kit Reed, I suppose. Wow, okay. Uh, well, Kit Reed has published phenomenally good stories uh, over a period of well, past more than 50 years now. Yep. Um, and yet seldom got nominated for Hugos or Nebulas. Uh, yep. She has uh, quite a few novels. I think, I think the reason I mention uh, her and McAllister together is because they both had consistent, long careers with high-quality stories that no one seems to take exception to, to to the literary quality of them, but that are never quite comfortable in in genre. Yeah. I mean, if you were to name the 20 leading uh, short story, science fiction short story writers of the last 50 years, um, I doubt if very many people's lists would include either Reed or McAllister. Possibly not, if only because you might not think of them rather than because they're not worthy. Well, that's that's exactly yeah. my point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is again people who have run below the radar for one reason or another. Yep. So the next one that, that that came to mind, and I don't know, it's it's too early to say it's it's overlooked. Uh, I mean, I've read some short fiction by Nina Allen earlier. Very rarely there was a, a, a short novel called Spin. I really like the stories that go to make up Stardust. Yep. Um, I think they're very clever, uh, but the more than that, they're 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 linked in increasingly complex ways. Yep. Uh, in the sense that she's doing something that doing something very similar to what McAllister was doing, the village sang by the sea, uh, of writing something which is uh, you can you cannot quite construct it as a novel uh, because any of the stories stand together, and if yep. you try to construct a continuous narrative from the stories, it doesn't work out. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, they're stories that inform each other as you start drawing links between them. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that, that I think, is a fascinating kind of... Now, this, um, now just, just to be clear, this is Stardust, the Ruby Castle stories that's come out from PS Publishing back in April. Okay, it's back in April. You're right. And, okay, then it does, it does fall into my category of having been overlooked because I've not heard a lot about it. Okay, yep. Uh, I think she's one of the more interesting emerging writers uh she had been writing these uh, ruby castle stories mm -hmm. i'd not read any of them before i read them together yep um and, the, and, and even the subtitle is is a little bit um subversive i mean there, there are no stories there's one story in which ruby, ruby castle actually appears as a character okay. there are no stories about ruby castle in this whole thing <laughs> she's simply a movie star who crops up in various guises okay. Throughout throughout the various stories, but that strikes me as a fascinating kind of technique and a writer who, um, you know, in another world, a group of stories like that might have gotten mainstream attention, might have gotten, um, you know, reviews in things like the, uh, the the New York Times or the Atlantic or the Guardian, uh, but it's again a writer who's mostly associated with our field and who is published by a publisher. Uh, almost entirely associated with our field. Yeah, I think she fairly regularly appears in Interzone, is my recollection. Mm -hmm. I believe she does. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you, uh, 
any short story collection that came out. Um, I think um, Christopher Barzak's collection, Before and After Lives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely some gorgeous stories. I mean, he is, in terms of just the beauty of his prose, one of the best short story writers we have. Um, Shouldn't that have been a major collection? Maybe it was a major collection. Maybe I just didn't hear the buzz about it. I I think it... No, I mean, much like uh, a book that I was thinking about, uh, Trafalgar by um, Angelica Grodischer. It seemed yeah. to come out to some attention, but not, you know, excessive attention. I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, uh, Paul Whit- Paul Whitgiver had a very good novel out this year, The Empire of All Things, which mm-hmm. uh, I think was largely strolled past by the world to date, at least. Uh, I certainly haven't heard a lot of people talking about it, reviewing it, that kind of thing. And Did if you, you compare, that oh, was a, a major trade publisher. I'd have to go look it up. Oh, okay. It's a major trade publisher. And then you compare that to what's happened just recently with a book that's genuinely getting buzzed that it deserves uh, in um, uh, Ancillaries, the, um, or Ancillary Justice, the Anne Leckie novel that's just mm-hmm. come out from Orbit, which I've been reading and is phenomenally good. I mean, it is one of the best science fiction novels of the year, period. Wonderful. Spectacular book, just out, and is actually getting a lot of buzz, but why it and not something else when there are other books around? What else you I got, Gary? That's the question. Well, what causes what causes a book to get buzz? I mean, um, another book which well, I mean, the Anne Lucky book. Uh, you've told me about it. I've seen about it. This is something I've heard about in various quarters. I don't have a copy of the book yet, um, but it does sound like an exciting book, and it's not a well-known name in the field. Um, no, she's not. She said short fiction and so other things. Well, for short fiction, but by and large, it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's not, it's not as a novelist certainly. No. Um, and yet, um, one of the books, which was not quite on my list of overlooked books, but, uh, uh, not not looked at as much as it should have been, not, if we're in the area of hard SF, was, would have been Paul McCauley's Evening's Empires. Yep. Third novel in the Quiet War series, which is always a problem, uh, and it does allude to the earlier novels in ways that add dimensions to it that you wouldn't get if you were yep. reading this as a standalone. But nevertheless, this is still one of the major hard SF writers to have developed during the last half century. Yep. Um, and how can a novel, a third novel, in really his best? I'm not. I'm trying to think. Is well, Gary, can I interject and say just to touch base with you and to tell you how it happens? It's the fourth novel in the series. Did I miss one? Quiet War, Gardens of the Sun, In the Mouth of the Whale, Evening's oh. Empires. In the mouth of the whale, you're right. In the mouth of the whale is kind of off. It's 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 part of the series, but not yeah. part of the continuous narrative. Yeah, okay. Because it's off there on El Deborah or wherever it is. Uh, but you're right. There are four novels, and and collectively, this is one of the major series. Um, and sometimes, it fascinates me that writers, especially hard SF writers, who put together a very impressive series of novels, that you would think become part of the canon. And I'm, you're still still kind of waiting for that to happen. Yep. I mean, I, uh, just to get back to uh, novels which have not been overlooked historically, this is not going back to this past year, but another series that, that the Quiet War series reminds me of in an odd way is Greg, Gregory Benford's Galactic Center series. Yes. Which has some enormously strong novels in it. Yep. Uh, it was the centerpiece of his career. Uh, each novel, as it came out, did get a lot of attention, but here we are, you know, a decade and a half after the last one, two decades after the last one came out, I suppose, 
And, well, not quite two Maybe. decades. Yeah. It wouldn't be far um, off anyway, yeah. But, but, but by and large, uh, those, are, those are novels which I think ought to be discussed, at least in the context of something like Larry Niven's Known Space series. They should have entered that part of the canon now. And I'm not sure they have. No, I think they're a slightly more, they're slightly colder books. Uh, well, I think they're quite a bit more literary books in many Oh, ways. no, I think they're much better books. And I think uh, books like uh, In the Oceans of Night and Great Sky River, which are part of the series, uh, mm. are phenomenally good science fiction books and some of my very favorite science fiction books of all time. Uh, I was a little less in love with the, the concluding volume, Sailing Bright Century, and I think there's one other. But the, the early ones were very, 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 yeah. very good. Um, candidate for me for Overlooked, five autobiographies and a fiction by Lucia Shepard. Another subterranean press book. Mm-hmm. Beautiful uh, subterranean which, press book. Uh, which, which, but but it, am I right that if you haven't ordered those in advance, in other words, if you don't know about them, you're probably not going to get a copy because in many cases within weeks of publication, they're sold out. It, it varies from from case to case, obviously, but that can be exactly. In fact, well, I mean, look at uh, Rachel's book. I mean, they did seven hundred and fifty copies. It's out of print oh, yeah. on publication, which, on one hand, is a phenomenal success for Subterranean, and I have no criticism of, of that at all. Uh, but I understand that it means that you know, if you didn't pre-order, then you're not going to get it. And I would think mm. it would be same, maybe the same with uh, the Ape's Wife and other stories by Caitlin Kiernan, which you've reviewed for the uh, the next issue of Locus. Right, and you know, I, I suspect if you haven't purchased that now, that you know, the, the odds are you will struggle to find a copy. You know, but that's how that goes, Gary, in the big world. No, I mean it's uh, it goes back to the point I was making earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't know, even with all the success that she's had this year, uh, with the recognition that the Drowning Girl got, and 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 the fact that Caitlin Kiernan has finally, I think, broken out of that sort of, uh, I, I don't want to use the word ghetto because it's overused, but they're broken out of that little workyard of, of being a horror writer or some kind of a weird fiction writer. Mm. Maybe maybe she's a weird fiction writer now because I guess anybody can be a weird fiction writer. Uh, but by and large, I think The Drowning Girl didn't do that by itself. I think she's been doing that over a period of years. So that The Ape's Wife and Other Stories is really the collection of stories, and it's it's a very good collection. There's uh, some very good science fiction in it. Um, unfortunately, her best science, possibly her best science fiction story to date, is only in the limited edition chapbook. Um, now this is Black that, Helicopters. Black Helicopters, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so in in a sense, I would hope that that Kiernan's audience would have broadened enough. Uh, that a lot more people would be interested in, in, in these stories than might have been three or four years ago. I, w- I will say, uh, in, in defense of the situation, uh, and it doesn't need much defending, uh, Subterranean particularly are very good about uh, making these things available online at various times as well. I wouldn't be shocked, though I have no reason to know it, that black helicopters may end up as part of the online magazine or something, making it more available to the world at large, which is a good thing. Well, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I don't no, mean not. to be criticizing Bill Schaefer or Subterranean at all. He has a very effective business model. He has a very successful publishing enterprise, and he's certainly putting together books that, uh, in many cases, either wouldn't be put together at all, wouldn't be published at all, or wouldn't be published in in such attractive, well-designed, well-edited volumes as he does. 
so so it's a it's it's a very useful as and, and PS is a very useful kind of um, uh, service to readers. The only problem is that I, I keep coming back to that readers need to know in advance what they want before yeah. and that's they what hear for- about it. By the time I, by the time my review of Caitlin Kiernan's uh, The Ape's Wife and Other Stories comes out, I'm going to make a reasonable bet that the book won't be available. I, I hope for her sake and for Bill's sake that that's the case. But uh, I, just as, a, as an aside, if you're listening to the podcast now and you have a love of fine short fiction, The Ape's Wife is currently still available. So ah. order, order, order. And we are rec- we are both recommending it, are we not? Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, there's, I mean, even if I, I've not read Black Helicopters yet, but I've read most of the stories in the book, and there are just some spectacular. In fact, I was lucky enough to publish a couple. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some spectacularly good stories in there. It's a very very fine book, so I completely recommend it. So who else have you got on a forgotten list? Okay, well, well, given given that I don't have a forgotten list at all, let me try uh-huh. you for a couple of potentially overlooked. The Adjacent by Christopher Priest, I think, is a book that stands a chance of being overlooked in our field because uh, that happens with Chris Priest. It happens in the States, at least. I'm yeah. not sure it happens as much in the UK. Uh, that, well, but then that still says that the largest science fiction market in the world is somewhat overlooking one of the major writers in the field. Oh, I think we Americans are really good at that. I mean, you know, we, we, we managed to overlook Kim John Harrison. We can overlook Christopher Priest. Um, back in the 60s, we did everything we could to overlook Ballard. Um, we kind of just got in our face anyway. That, yes. Uh, I think, how about uh, Adam Roberts with Adam Robots, the major collection of his short fiction that came out this year? That should be an important collection. Um, I'll go for it. Else... No, that is an important collection. It's just well, yes. I think that it's largely being overlooked in our circles. A very good point. And it's interesting because I was at a dinner party just last night and spontaneously a bookseller mentioned um, uh, Adam Roberts as a particularly, in fact, a surprisingly fine writer, I think was the way he put it, because he'd seen books go by and not try, tried them and was taken aback at just how good he was given the lack of attention that he gets. I think he um, may be getting – I'd like to think he's getting a, a, a good deal more attention following um, uh, following Jack Glass, following his novel last year, which I think was a kind of – in some ways, at least in the States, seemed to be kind of a, yeah. a, a breakout novel. Sure. And, I mean, I think he gets more attention in the UK, but I would like to think that he might get more in, in the US. Um, I guess if I was going down a list – I might wonder whether um, let me think. Well, obviously, I've mentioned uh, Angelica Grodish's Homeland is a book that's not getting enough attention. I uh-huh. mentioned The Empire of All Things, which came out from Trans World for Paul Whitgiver, but didn't get enough attention. Um, I don't know. I mean, it hap- the, the, one of the problems with a book that doesn't get enough attention is that we didn't see it either. Is quite well, that's a problem. Well. And that does happen. Uh, someone, every now and again, someone will say, "Well, what about you know?" This book, you know, have you seen the beautiful thing that, that awaits us all by Laird Barron, maybe, which has been reviewed in Locus and is a f- spectacularly good collection? Or have you seen North, was it North American Lake Monsters or North American Monsters, the um, Nathan Ballingrade collection? That's Lake Monsters, book, yeah. Which is a fantastically and, good collection, but are people talking about it? You know? and, you, and when you mention the. Um, and Angelica Garadisha novel, the other one, uh, which which that reminded me of, 
Um, partly because it was involved with Lucia Le Guin, it was a, another small book from, I believe, um, Aqueduct by Georgi Sasserman, or mm-hmm. Georgi Sasserman, called uh, Scoring the Circle, a pseudo-treatise of Urbogony, which is a collection of very short pieces about imaginary cities mm-hmm. that... It's a sort of thing where you begin to, and I'm sure this must have been part of what Le Guin's reaction to it was as well. He said, okay, here's somebody, here's one of these magical, realist European writers in this case whose who's, who's antecedents are really Kafka and Borges and so forth. And you start reading him and you think, this guy really knows a lot about science fiction. Mm. He's really been involved with it. He's, he's read it. So there, there are all sorts of sophisticated in-jokes for the people like us, and, and at the same time, it's that very literary kind of elegant little book of, of beautifully crafted small pieces, which are equally eloquent, elegant in, um, in English because of Russell's yeah. translations. Uh, again, that had, the, it had no advantages going forward. It had one advantage going forward, which is that Ursula Le Guin championed it and translated it. Yeah. Other than that, it was a small press. It was a writer that almost nobody outside of Romania had heard of. Um, and it was not a novel. Yeah. Uh, but so, so, so th- things like that, I think, will eventually build an audience uh, yeah. as long as they continue to be available. And that raises my question, which goes back to the beginning of the podcast when we were talking about Edward Whittemore. Who today is waiting to sort of be resurrected like that? Keith and Roberts. Who, yeah, Keith Roberts is a very good example. Although Keith Roberts, at least Pavan, is widely regarded as one of the two or three best alternate history works ever, and at and least mi- by people who've read it. Absolutely, and my hat's off to Old Earth Books and Mike Walsh for doing a gorgeous reprint of it recently, and to uh, Audible for doing a very good audiobook version of it. But the vast majority of uh, Robert's catalog, you know, sort of languishes out of print. I know there are some, uh, a number of books I think are available through in ebook through the Golan's SF Gateway. Uh, mm. But by and large, the majority of his work is, eff- is effectively out of print. Um, I don't know. I'd also have to. I'd have to think. I'm sure that, given sort of 20 minutes, rather than off the top of my head, I could come up with any number of writers who are stunningly good and who are out of, are basically out of print and and forgotten at the moment. Let me ask you. This is a variant as we bop around in this conversation. Uh-huh. How long does a book have to have not been just discussed? to have been overlooked. Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice came out uh, in the first week of October. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of buzz right now. You're highlighting, uh, understandably, Evening's Empires maybe by Paul McCauley as having been potentially overlooked. But it's only a July book, Gary. You know, it's only barely had a chance to be looked. Never mind over. Yeah. Or, or well, is it that it has to have that great... Is it that you need that great splurge of attention... And then to have it carry through, because sometimes books it doesn't work that like that way for them. For them, I mean, I wonder whether uh, Joe Walton's most most recent novel, among others, whether it went that way for her. I think there's a lot of it, you know, thought that it would get overlooked, and then it was received very warmly in the field. Um, mm. But you know, if you're talking about a book that came out in July or August, and you're in at most, what, the second week of October, and in fact, we're still in the first week of October, has it been overlooked well, yeah. yet? Or is, or is the issue here that we need a mechanism, and that's what this podcast is supposed to do, to act as something of a, a corrective before it, the, you know, the work is overlooked? Well, I think one of the things we want to do is, is, is to hope that our listeners will think of books that they might have thought. I, I, I don't know how long does a book have to um, 
not have buzz in order to count as an overlooked book. Um, you, you can look in terms of years or decades, as, as with Whittemore. Mm -hmm. uh, you're right. In the period of uh, any one of these overlooked books we've talked about could win um, a Hugo or a World Fantasy Award or a Nebula or something next year, and suddenly it wouldn't be overlooked anymore. Um, books can be, which, which, by the way, is one of the functions, I think, of awards, especially sure. the short fiction awards, is that it does bring attention to books and stories that otherwise might not be wi widely read. Uh, I think the field is full of books that um, have been unjustly overlooked and books that have been justly overlooked. I mean, we've talked before about most Mark Clifton novels, which uh, you try to go back and read them, um, don't hold up very well. One interesting example, just having done some historical work in the field, of what was an over, overlooked book for a long time, believe it or not, was Kurt Vonnegut's The Sirens of Titan. Really? Oh, well, and, yeah. Well, it was a Dell paperback. It was an original um, an original paperback. Yeah. It, some people still believe it's his best science fiction novel as science fiction, and in some ways I may tend to agree with that. Um, it made a little bit of a splash in the science fiction field, which was the only place he was known at that time. Yeah. And it wasn't until four years later, I believe, or three or four years later, that Cat's Cradle came out and he started getting the mainstream reputation. And it wasn't until a decade or so after that that the mainstream readership began to... Um, take Vonnegut seriously because yep. you had the Cat's Cradle and eventually you had Slaughterhouse-Five. And I would I would say it was in the 70s before people started actually going back and looking at the Sirens of Titan uh, as anything other than an early embarrassment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which it clearly wasn't. And and now there are people who still will say that's one of his best novels. Um, that's an odd example because that's an example of somebody who, um, you know, developed a, a, a large mainstream reputation after it had more yeah. or less left the science fiction field. Well, a book that um, I always highlight as being overlooked because it was overlooked at the time and remains overlooked, even though it was a major, major book in my way of thinking, was Paul Preuss's uh, The Secret, uh, Secret Passages. Ah, good example. I think that's... Now, if we were going to talk about overlooked authors, uh, who I think was one of the... Uh, one of the people... Let me, let me see who I could compare him to. One of the people who could write intensely observed... Uh, character relationship, yeah. family relationship dramas uh, uh, based on hard science, and in, in, in some ways, some ways his his the mainstream aspect of his work uh, is is something that yeah. only writers like Robert Charles Wilson are doing now, yeah. and getting away with. But he was doing this. You're right. He was doing this with speculative physics and astronomy. What back in the 70s? Yeah. Um, and it just didn't go anywhere. He's I guess essentially left the field by now. Mm -hmm. um, the last time I talked to him actually was at Charles Brown's memorial service, I think. Okay. Uh, perfectly happy with what he was doing, but I was stunned by the last novel of Secret Passages is one of the ones I think I reviewed early on. I was just stunned by how that held up as a literary novel as well as a science fiction sure. novel, and it's gone. I don't even. I doubt. I'd be surprised if it's in print at all. It's I'd be not surprised if any of his fiction is in print. Uh, it's possible the Venus Prime books might still be in print. You know, when he's doing yeah, that sort be, of yeah. uh, those sort of, I think they're Asimov-related books or something. Um, another, well, rather than go through, do you have any any other candidates for most overlooked for the year, or sh shall we begin to turn our minds to other subjects? We can turn our minds to other subjects because I actually had written up a list for people who say I never ever prepare. I have 
Uh, I have a list, but I used it up minutes well, and minutes ago. What I will do for the purposes of the podcast is you can email me that later, Gary, and I'll add it to the show notes when this goes okay. out. Because this particular podcast, Gary, will will most likely come out on the weekend of the 13th of October, which is the, uh, what, about 10 days before we will be together. We'll be in London and then we'll be in Brighton. And we will be podcasting up a storm. We will be talking to, well, we hope to, we plan to, we'll probably fail to, but uh, talking to all kinds of interesting people about books and stuff. And I think we might even have a panel together, don't we, Gary? I think we have the panel on probably, but I don't know, let's say we're doing a panel on the most overlooked books of the year. And if we're not, (laughs) we'll make it that. I'm not sure that the other panel members will necessarily go along with that, Gary. I have never, I have, I don't think I've ever been on a panel with anybody who actually wanted to be on the panel that they were on. That's oh, just I the nature of conventions. I, have, I mean, I've, I've been on the sad version where you've got someone who's been waiting 25 years to get on that panel with that subject and they're prepared. Uh, oh, that's true. And then I've been on the other version, sad version of that panel where nobody prepared because they all kind of went, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And that was even worse. Uh, but this one's... Uh, Best fantasy of the year, I think. It's what we're supposed uh, to. The best is it the best fantasy of the year, the best books of the year, or something? I don't know. Best fantasy of the um, year, which would be good because it'll help prepare for the Crawford. We can talk about uh, a stranger in a Londria mm-hmm. by Sophia Samatar, which is one of the one of the best fantasies of the year, without a doubt. We can talk about Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman, which is one of the best fantasies of the year. We'll try and find an excuse to talk about Karen jo- 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 Joy Fowler's. Uh, we're completely beside ourselves just because we should. And historically, mm-hmm. that's what we've done on the podcast. We talk about Karen Fowler, even if she doesn't fit into the subject. Um, and all sorts of other stuff, I'm sure. It'll be good. Well, one of the things, yeah, and uh, that's a good point because uh, as soon as we get back from um, from World Fantasy, where you, we, we need to start this. It's my problem more than yours. I need to start discussions among the people who are nominating for next year's Crawford Award for yep. Which is for a first fantasy book that could include uh, a book of short stories. Mm. Uh, but meanwhile, I think we'll just be looking at, uh, hoping to see a lot of good friends while we're in London, and hoping to see more good friends while we're in Brighton, and do a few podcasts while we're there. And and both of us can try to avoid the what is now, I think, the most tiresome trope of panelists at all, which is. I don't know why I was put on this panel, but I've prepared 20 minutes worth of remarks just in case. <laughs> no, I'm afraid of the exact opposite. I know exactly why I'm supposed to be on this panel, but I don't think I'm ready anyway. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's, that's kind of like, yeah. <laughs> I think that's far more likely. <laughs> that could very well but, be. But no, I think it should be great. Um, obviously, I, I mean, there is some vague risk, I guess, slight risk that we made... Um, not we may skip a, a podcast while we're in transit. There's an outside chance of that because we've we've got one up our sleeves, I think, Gary, and we can do one next weekend when um, it's 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 my daughter's birthday that weekend. So we'll see how we go that weekend. Mm-hmm. And then yes, the in, we're intransigent. Intransigent. Yes, yes, on planes, intransigent. Okay. Yes, I mean, unless we could, we could do a little bonusy one, maybe we might do a bonus one. Well, we could, we could end it. Yeah, when we're when we're actually uh, en route, we shouldn't be able to. But we 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 should oh, be able. Let's to try to do a podcast something. live from the plane. We could do one on the plane. Absolutely, we're not on the same planes, but we're in the air at the same well, time. That's true. Well, <laughs> we could just we, we we could do one of those old-fashioned radio show interviews and just <laughs> hang out at Heathrow and see who comes in. Well, I mean, hey, it's it's world fantasy. Surely Heathrow will be overflowing with people. 
I'm sure. Okay. Well, I think we might, even though we're just a little bit short of our hour, maybe we'll, we'll take a moment to sort of shout out, because even though it's a, going to be a week late, uh, a happy birthday to Ellen Kushner. It's her birthday today. Excellent. So happy birthday happy to her. Happy birthday, and, Ellen. And to everybody else who, I guess, shows up in my Facebook sort of list of people who's having a birthday this week, because there's all sorts of interesting people. Not One Direction, who I went and saw the other day. They're too young to have birthdays. Mm-hmm. And I apologize to everybody whose birthdays show up in my Facebook and I don't acknowledge them because I'm really bad at that. Well, happy birthday, Ian Mond, for this week as well. Oh, excellent. <laughs> also, no, not happy birthday to that person. Okay, and Michael Walsh. It's Michael Walsh's birthday this week and we've been talking about oh, it. Oh, excellent. So, perfect. Right. And on that almost completely beside the point, 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 we might wind up the podcast. And we will be back soon-ish. Oh, we will be in your ear before you even know it. Until then, talk to you next time.